Mackerel Podcast number 437 for December 9th, 2014, brought to you by Boom 2 from Global Delight. Louder, clearer, and better audio from your Mac. Welcome to another Mackerel Podcast. Susie's on vacation this week, and so it is my great pleasure to welcome Mr. Ben Long, who's a pal of mine, as well as uh, ace photographer, wonderful writer, and uh, an all-around nice guy. Hey, Ben. Hey, Chris. You know, I wanted to talk about cameras because you're a camera guy. Okay. Among other many other things that you that you do, <laughs> but um, because this is the holiday season, and I don't really want to do like a ooh holiday season camera thing. But um, I haven't caught up with you in a while, and um, one reason I wanted to speak with you is because I just bought a new DSLR, a Nikon seven fifty, and I'm waiting for somebody to knock on the door and give it to me. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, and I I emailed you about this a couple of days ago, and you said, "Oh yeah, you know, I'm not using those anymore." <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, let's start with um, what's kind of the state of the art now in in cameras for people like you who are professional shooters and trainers, and uh, and then kind of talk about normal people like me. Well, it, it the camera market is is a really exciting place right now because there are so many different directions you can go but of course that mostly ends up being confusing you're getting a new slr i assume because you wanted to step up from a cropped frame sensor to a full frame sensor is what it sounds like yeah so i had a nikon d300 before now i'm going up to a full frame sensor because i thought why not i can shoot in lower light and has more pixels and you know all that right and of course the other the other big change is you can ostensibly get shallower depth of field than you can with a cropped sensor camera. So if you like really blurring out the background on a portrait and you have a really fast lens, you're going to be able to get a really nice soft smeary background a little bit more than you could have with a cropped frame camera. The downside is you're going to have a bigger camera and bigger lenses. Yeah, well, the whole lens thing was, yeah. <laughs> was an issue. Um, you know, I, this was sort of one of these things like, oh, I have some extra money. I, it's really time I trade it up. And then I, you know, pulled that trigger and then went, oh, right. And then I started doing some of the research on the kit lenses and people were like, yeah, mm-hmm, not so much. <laughs> um, so then, oh, well, I can afford a full frame 50 millimeter and that's fine. But, you know, I'm kind of one of those enthusiasts who likes to have the zoom thing too. And then right. so you look at like the zoom lens where people say, yeah, not so good. And then like, oh, this is really good for that camera. But now you're talking about $2,000. Right, right. So yeah, you've kind of opened a Pandora's box of upgrades. That yeah. That's an expensive box. But what you are going to get is like you said, much better low light performance. And and sometimes full frame cameras, just they've just got a different quality about them. They Because of the because of the slight changes in depth of field and the bigger sensor, which means actually bigger individual pixels a lot of times, uh, you just get a quality that is is different and, and very nice. Um, I have a 5D Mark III, which I've used for years, and before that I had the Mark II, and before that the 5D. So I've been shooting full frame for a long time, and I've got nice lenses to go with it. And boy, the thing's heavy, and I'm tired of carrying it around. <laughs> <laughs> and I travel a lot. and. Um, uh, a lot of times it, it really just doesn't fit, especially if I'm traveling by motorcycle or mm-hmm. uh, needing to travel really light. So about a year ago, I bought Canon's Rebel SL1, which is the smallest SLR in existence, according to Canon. And it's a really tiny little Rebel body, so that's a cropped sensor body. So, And, and I have not gotten rid of my 5D, and I still do use it, and I love that camera. If, if I could have a Sherpa following me around with my <laughs> camera gear, that is what, if I could, if I could have my 
my camera boy who would just hand me right. my camera, like a caddy is what I'm looking for, um, it would be great because at that moment I would lift it up to my eye and I would have all of that wonderful full-frame quality. Another really great thing about a full-frame camera is the viewfinder is enormous, and I expect that's the thing you're going to notice right away when you pull the camera out of the box. Is just It's like, I, well, I'm at an IMAX theater now. I can yeah. look around inside the viewfinder, and it's really bright, and that's just fantastic until you're done taking the picture and you have to carry it again. Um, and I've been actually also another issue here is I've been having a lot of shoulder pain lately and uh, I think it is partly because I've been carrying a camera bag on my left shoulder for so long so I got this little Rebel which is great because it, it's it's very tiny very good image quality it can use either full frame lenses or cropped sensor lenses so I was able to like you go out and spend a bunch of money on new lenses and have this very small kit um, and then I got into this Fuji thing. So we there are now there's now a new category of camera that people may have heard about, the mirrorless camera. In an SLR, of course, that stands for single lens reflex, meaning your viewfinder looks through the actual lens that you're shooting through. And people might think, well, isn't that always how it works? And it's not. There are cameras called twin lens reflexes. Those are those boxy cameras that have two lenses on the front that you look mm -hmm. down on top of. Or there are rangefinder cameras like an old Leica where you're looking through one lens for framing and focusing and the, the camera is actually being exposed, the film is being exposed through another lens. All of those twin lens cameras have issues and complications to deal with. You, you don't really necessarily know that your framing is exactly what you think it's going to be. You... Uh, don't know the effect of any filters or other things that you might have put on the end of a lens. So the SLR was a real breakthrough because it allowed you to look through the actual lens, and that's all done with mirrors. And I don't mean that metaphorically. There's actually <laughs> like all the best things. No, in like the world. all the best things. Yes, <laughs> there's it's it's there's there's a little mirror inside your camera that flips up and down that changes the light path so that you can either be looking through the lens or the lens can be exposing the. Uh, focal plane where the digital image sensor is. The problem is all of the stuff necessary for the mirror makes the camera larger. So now we have a new class of camera called mirrorless cameras that get rid of the mirror and the associated prisms and other mirrors and smoke and all the other stuff that's necessary to make the SLR work. They get rid of all that and replace it with an electronic viewfinder. Now I've often railed against electronic viewfinders, and I expect yeah. I will have my words thrown back at me, but the electronic viewfinders really come a long way just in the last couple of years, and Fuji has released a camera called the X-T1, which is part of a line of cameras, their X-series, that, and I've had these before and liked them, and the Fuji lenses are spectacular, and their sensor is fantastic, but I've, I've just never really liked their viewfinder until now, and the X-T1 viewfinder is, is just fantastic and the camera is very small, the lenses are very small, and I've been pretty much shooting exclusively with that for the last month or so, and really enjoying it. There are, uh, there are other mirrorless cameras out there. Sony makes a, a line of mirrorless cameras that are very good, Panasonic does, and then of course there's the, uh, Panasonic is part of the Micro Four Thirds Consortium, so there's Panasonic and Olympus, and they're all making these, these little mirrorless cameras that are also very good. So that's another way you can go. So, what kind of money are you talking about for the Fuji X-T1? Body only for 1200 bucks. I'm not sure what the kit is. The, the, the kit lens is very good. There's an exceptional collection of little prime lenses. Um, I actually built a little spreadsheet just trying to figure out what the weight differences are between... I've now got... So, I've now got this small SLR, uh, my full-frame SLR, and I have the Fuji. And so, to put together kind of equivalent packages, 
I was it was curious to find out that actually the Rebel is very competitive with the Fuji in terms of weight. Mm. Um, for just a very basic body kit lens, maybe one other lens, they were coming out almost the same. The Fuji's a little bit lighter, but it's a whole lot smaller. And I'm getting better image quality out of it than I am out of the Rebel. Compared to the 5D, there's there's really no comparison. It is much, much lighter. So what, in ter- what about in terms of quality? So if you're a pro, you're probably not going to go with something like a Fuji, right? You're still going to have your camera caddy with you and no, that thing around? not at all. It's, it's, mm. uh, there are, I'm finding in a lot of cases, depending on which lenses I'm using, I'm getting better quality than I, than I was getting out of my 5D in certain circumstances, straight out of the camera shooting raw. Um, one of the things about the Fuji is there is no SLRs, for the most part, most SLRs have a filter in front of the sensor that blurs the image a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's a necessary part of doing the color interpolation. Your a digital camera is actually a black and white device. Color is kind of a hack that's laid on top. And so part of the way that hack works in most cameras is you, they need to blur the image a little bit. Because of the way the Fuji sensor works, they don't need that blurring filter. And so the images straight out of the camera are just really, really sharp. Now. The, the amount of blur that's introduced in an SLR can be put back with, with simple sharpening plugins. That's why having that filter there is not a deal breaker for your camera. But I, the image quality on the Fuji is exceptional. The web is full of articles of professional photographers who are saying, I'm ditching my SLR and, and wow. going mirrorless. And that's not just with the Fuji. You've got your, your Sony aficionados and, and the other cameras there. These are very, very good cameras now. Now, what I'm giving up is what you're about to get. I am the, the Fuji is not a full frame sensor, so I am giving up some shallow depth of field. The Sony, mm-hmm. by comparison, is a full frame, so you can still stick with your your full frame uh, quality in this smaller camera. I do not. I, I'm finding the the depth of field that I can get off the camera is fine for the way that I usually like to shoot shallow depth of field. I don't really need super razor thin depth of field, uh, so that hasn't been a problem for me. The trade offs are. Uh, one of the nice things about the Fuji, it's a beautiful camera, and it's got a very old-school design. What I like about it is there are no modes on the camera. It works the way uh, uh, like single-program SLR used to work. I've got an aperture ring on my lens, and I have a shutter speed dial on the top. And if I put both of those rings on automatic mode, I have a fully automatic camera. If I put the shutter speed dial on automatic, then I've got an aperture priority camera or if I put the aperture ring on automatic I've got a shutter priority camera and so it just works the way that I learned so it feels really familiar which is nice at the same time you understand why modes and interfaces on cameras have changed over the last however 25 years the 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 modern interface is very good so there are times on the Fuji where I get a little frustrated that I can't work a little more quickly Mm-hmm. Because I've got to turn a knob up here instead of just quickly spinning a wheel on the back of the camera or something like that. But I'm I'm getting used to that, and I mostly shoot landscape stuff. So as long as this, you know, I mean, the scene's not changing for fifty thousand years, so I've got time <laughs> to turn a knob. Uh, so that that hasn't really been a huge problem. Okay, so you're you're telling me that I kind of sort of bought the wrong camera. <laughs> not necessarily. Not at all. There, there's. There's no, I mean, there is no wrong camera. It, it's a cliche to say, you know, it's it's the photographer, not the camera. Um, that, and that's true up to a point. There's a point where you're going to be frustrated by your camera if it doesn't give you what you want. Um, I think it's good for you to 
go to full frame and try that for a while and see if it feels different. See if you notice the difference. See mm-hmm. if you are able to do things that you couldn't do. Now, the only way you're going to get into some of this new capability that your full frame camera gets you is by buying expensive lenses. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could rent them. You can rent them, and that's a great option. Rent a 1.2 millimeter, 50 or 85 millimeter lens and, and shoot with it for a weekend and see what you think about shooting portraits with super shallow depth of field. See what you think about shooting in extremely low light without, yeah. you know, handheld, without without having to worry about shutter speed. Um, see if you do notice that even on normal depth of field shots in the middle of the aperture range, which is where you usually want to be shooting uh, for, for best sharpness, even even there, do you notice a difference in image quality with a when you put a really good lens on it? A, a lot of times what you'll notice... Uh, with a with a really good lens is just all sorts of little micro contrast details. You, it's hard to put your finger on it. Just the image just looks better. And sometimes mm-hmm. you'll find that more on a, on your full frame camera than on your crop sensor camera. And and on the other hand, you might go back to your crop sensor camera and go, boy, I really miss the the fact that I have an effectively longer focal length. Right. Um, it's there's trade offs in any camera you buy. Yeah, and because I've largely been frustrated by low light. Because really? I don't have really expensive lenses, with, you know, very fast, big old lenses on the thing. So when I try to shoot in low light, even though the D300, I can pump the ISO way up. Right. I still, you know, it's a hit or miss thing. I may just jog the camera just a little bit and like, no, I didn't quite get it there. or I'm not happy with the, the tonality of the light that I end up with. And so that's one reason I'm looking forward to the, to the camera. And I may end up renting a couple of expensive lenses and see if it really makes a difference to me. I've read reviews of, of these cameras and other lenses and they talk about the bouquet and you know, yeah, yeah. You know and how it's creamy or it's right. creamy buttery and it's just yeah, yeah it's like a, uh, okay. right yeah uh, it, yeah it's strange when toast descriptions come into into photography. Um, <laughs> oh it's buttery and crispy. Um, one of the things about these fast lenses, I have the Canon 50mm 1.2, which is a fantastic lens. And when you open it up to 1.2, you can shoot in total darkness. You know, if you can crank your, if you've got a camera that gives you a nice, clean, high ISO, which the 5D does. And, and it's a hard lens to work with when it's wide open, because if you focus on someone's eyes, like the middle of their nose will be out of focus. That's how shallow mm. your depth of field is. You're really talking about like a centimeter of depth of field. And that also means that if their face is not perpendicular to your, or, or parallel with your focal plane, if they've tilted their head back or, or turned their head just a little bit, one eye will be sharp and the other will be out of focus. Yeah, which is fine for a specialty shot, but it's not it, a great portrait. Right, it, but so it makes it a very difficult lens to work with sometimes because you've got to be very, very, very careful about focus. The other thing is when you get to the extremes of an aperture range, so wide open or stop down really far, you start to suffer something called diffraction artifacts, which yield an overall softening in the lens. And in most lenses, you'll find this starting on a full-frame camera once you go much past f11, meaning going to smaller apertures, bigger numbers. Mm-hmm. So f16, you, you might notice that the image overall is just a little bit softer than it was at f11. f22, it might be a whole lot softer. On a cropped sensor camera, this starts even at f8. So I, you on a crop sensor camera, this is another downside to them. You have a, a, a more narrow aperture range. However, because a smaller sensor inherently gives you uh, a, a little bit more depth of field, you're not necessarily giving up the ability to get really deep depth of field. Um, 
And the same thing is true at the fully open end. If you've opened your lens all the way up to 1.2, you might be suffering an overall sharpness loss in the image, aside just from your shallow depth of field. So I often think of the 1.2 lens is really so that you can shoot at 1.4 or 1.8 and right. have a nice sharp image, sharper than you would get shooting with a 1.4 or 1.8 lens. Now, the downside to these really fast lenses is they're big and heavy. Yeah, um, It takes a lot of glass to make a really fast lens. But but the, the bigger point was, yeah, getting this new camera is going to let you shoot in some different ways, and that's never a bad thing. You know, there's also nothing wrong with just going, I've gotten bored. I want to be re-energized somehow, and I think getting to work with a different camera will do that for me. Um, if this puts some spunk back into your shooting and makes you want to go out and shoot more, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, well, and part of it is, too, because, you know, it's not a cheap camera. Right, so yeah. You want to kind of go out and say, well, I spent this money on it, so I really need to go outside and start using it. Right, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if it guilts you into shooting, that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's exactly right. But no, yeah. Hmm. And I'm really finding that with the Fuji is the, it's a, it's, it's just a very fun instrument to use. So mm-hmm. I, it's, I'm shooting a lot right now in a way that I hadn't been lately just because I want to go out and play with the camera. Um, and there is something... Uh, I have been buying up a lot of their really fast prime lenses just to really revel in all the sharpness that the cam- camera can can use. And I don't normally shoot that way. I Like you, I'm normally more prone to zoom lenses. And so that's a very different way of shooting, which on the one hand is frustrating because you may not have the right lens on the camera at the right time, but it's also making me see things different. If you're in a rut, changing up your gear is sometimes a way to kickstart yourself. And, yeah. you know, eBay just changes everything. You can You can try this camera for six months, and if you decide either you don't like it or it's not better enough to have been worth the money, you can put it on eBay and probably only lose a few hundred dollars uh, and effectively go, I got a really good deal on a camera rental for six months. <laughs> yeah, well, true. <laughs> well, I want to talk a little bit about point-and-shoots because um, <clears throat> recently, you know, we've been getting better and better phone cameras. You know, Apple made a big deal about the iPhone 6 and the 6 Plus and say, oh, look, at this. you know, it's a camera and, and you'll never need another point-and-shoot right. again. So have phone cameras... Uh, been enhanced to the point where point-and-shoots are dead, or there's still reasons to go out and get a point-and-shoot? There's that cliche about, oh, the best camera is the one you have with you. And mm-hmm. like, no. <laughs> In my case, <laughs> the best camera might be the one that I left at home. Uh, yeah. But I have this phone with me, so I'll, sh- I'll shoot with it. Uh, and you could argue, well, that's better than not getting the shot at all. I don't know, sometimes. Sometimes you take the shot and go, wow, this would have been great if I'd had a real camera, but it's not really usable <laughs> with my phone. I have an iPhone 6. It has a great camera, asterisk, uh, you know, and the asterisk being for a cell phone. Right. And I think that we can all get a little wowed by, wow, you know, this is amazing. I, my phone took this picture. Isn't it great? Yeah, but still in low light. It's noisy. It doesn't have the dynamic range of a, of a real camera. Uh, I, I'm, on the one hand, blown away by the phone, on by, by the camera on my iPhone, but I still would prefer to work with a nice point-and-shoot than with the iPhone, and there are mm-hmm. some very nice point-and-shoots. I'm currently, for my point-and-shoot camera, I'm using a Sony RX100 Mark III, which I love. Uh, I've had all three of the RX100s, and they're all still available. There are differences in each one. The advantage of this camera is it's got... Most point-and-shoot cameras, like the iPhone, have a teeny tiny image sensor in them. So when we're talking about a cropped sensor 
on an SLR. We're talking about a sensor that is the size of a piece of APS film, which was one of one of the kind of last consumer film formats that was released before digital took over. It's a little bit smaller than a piece of 35 millimeter film. When we say mm -hmm. full frame, we're obviously talking about a camera that has a sensor that's as big as a piece of 35 millimeter film. Uh, the sensor on a typical point and shoot camera or or cell phone is like a third of a centimeter diagonally. So it's teeny tiny little sensors. Yeah. And the problem with a teeny tiny sensor is you have teeny tiny pixels. So they just simply can't gather as much light. So your signal to noise ratio is lousy and it's difficult to get good noise response in low light. The Sony RX100 has a much larger sensor. It's not up to the size of APS, but it's, it's pretty big. So I have great low light performance. I can get slightly shallower depth of field. It's got it really feels like shooting with a tiny little SLR. It's, it's got full priority modes, full manual modes, an interface very similar to what I'm used to on my SLRs. And what sold, what really sells me on the RX100 Mark III is it has a pop-up viewfinder. Oh. It's an electronic viewfinder, but still, I, I don't like shooting at arm's length looking at an LCD screen. I yeah. I like blocking out the world and really focusing on my shot. And a long time ago, point-and-shoot makers stopped putting optical viewfinders or any other kind of eye-level viewfinder on their cameras. And so Sony has put it back. And you don't have to shoot that way, but uh, it's there. And so I'm just really liking this camera. My only complaint about it is it, the lens doesn't go super wide. It's a, I think it's a 28 millimeter wide angle equivalent. And when I want wide, I usually want a little bit wider than that. Mm. But still, for a carry around camera, it's great. Honestly, I have not looked at a lot of other high end point and shoots. Canon's got one that that uh, gets very, very good reviews, uh, as do uh, Panasonic and Fuji. Uh, I'm sure Olympus still does. So no, there are still very good point-and-shoots out there. I think what we've seen is the loss of the low-end point-and-shoot market. Right. That's been replaced by cell phones, but there are still very nice uh, higher-end point-and-shoots, and I'm talking about cameras that are $450 and up. I think the RX100 Mark III is 700 bucks or something like that, so it's not a cheap camera. There are The Mark II and the Mark I are less expensive than that, and I think that they are still absolutely uh, something worth looking into. I would not... If I was going on a weekend trip and absolutely could not take my my X-T1 or my small Rebel uh, and certainly not my Mark III, I would not want to depend on just my phone. I would like to have a nice point and shoot with me. So if you're really if you're really a stickler for image quality or more importantly if you just like having true photographic control you need a, you need a real camera. We're gonna talk a little bit more and I want to get into editing software in just a second. But before we get to that a message about Boom 2 from Global Delight, louder, clearer, and better audio from your Mac. Boom 2 by Global Delight is a pro audio app for Mac that offers a system-wide volume booster, advanced equalizer control and presets, amazing audio effects, and much more. This indispensable app was built from scratch and is designed for Yosemite. And Boom 2 is tailored to calibrate itself to suit your Mac as no two are the same. It's louder, clearer, and better. With personalized and customized sound to suit any occasion, it also gives you the power to fine-tune and control every single element of audio coming out of your Mac. That can be Spotify, Netflix, YouTube, iTunes, and every other service out there. They're about to sound a whole lot better. And hey, an earlier version of Boom was a Macworld Best of Show in 2011. You can try Boom 2 free for seven days, and if you'd like to buy a copy, you get 20% off using the coupon code MACWORLD. And this coupon is good throughout December. 
To download your free trial and then buy, type this URL, http colon slash slash bit.ly slash macworldboom. Again, that's bit.ly slash macworldboom. And now I want to talk about editing software. And one reason is because Apple is, they're moving off to, you know, they're going to get rid of iPhoto, Aperture is done. Right. And they're going to move everything to Photos, which we haven't seen yet. So right. we don't know what that's going to be. But what does this do for people editing Photos? Or have they kind of moved away from Apple a long time ago and are using Adobe products or Nikon stuff or somebody else's? That's a actually a really good question. You know, no one I know uses... Apple stuff really for editing. Um, the couple of Aperture users that I knew obviously now just sit around and weep because <laughs> they've got this library full of stuff that they need to figure out how to migrate to a new system. Um, I I can't help but wonder if whatever the iPhoto replacement is going to be, if we can assume that by looking at at what the the iPhone editing software is like now. That's you know maybe kind of a hint of the functionality we're going to see. And I think the new tonal controls in in the Photos app are are pretty cool. They're mm -hmm. their brightness slider that at some point along the spectrum of the slider you also get a change of contrast. It, there's a, there's a lot you can do with this stuff. There's some very intelligent tools, and that's that's cool. Um, I would not want to use that in a professional environment for any number of reasons. So I. I assume Apple's just going to continue to abandon the the professional high-end market and continue to aim at consumer editing, which the iPhone is great at. But who knows? Yeah. Uh, you know, of course, we can't predict. There are a number of different products out there. Obviously, there's the Adobe stuff. Your camera probably came with editing software on its own, so your Nikon camera is going to come with a version of Capture NX. Um, there's if you're a raw shooter there's capture one there's any number of different image editing programs um i just really don't see any reason that anyone would use anything other than the adobe products <laughs> right i mean they they've owned this for quite some time and and they give you a couple of options if you if you're hardcore you can use photoshop but otherwise lightroom and i hear people just absolutely love lightroom the thing and, and you know, and they're going to be people. I know people are angry about the subscription model, which honestly I don't get because if you were upgrading regularly, um, you're still paying less than when you were paying for a regular right. upgrade. But also, if you if you ever worked, if you ever had a dark room at home, you know, your monthly payment for a copy of Photoshop and Lightroom is still so much less than the consumables that you had when you when you were using a darkroom. These are amazing tools that we're getting at a pretty astonishing price, even even with subscription. Um, but the the real killer reason for me for using Lightroom or the latest version of Camera Raw, actually not the latest version, the last couple of versions of Camera Raw, and I'm a I'm a raw shooter. Uh, the the set of controls in Camera Raw and Lightroom is, to my mind, or are, to my mind, the best set of tonal adjustment tools the world has ever seen. Nothing else comes close to the selection of five sliders that are the core tonal adjustment controls in Lightroom and Camera Raw. They, they finally, Adobe's gone through now three different sets of raw conversion tools, and they've nailed it. And they are dramatically superior to anything that Aperture ever had, or I believe to anything that's in any other raw editor. The reason being, I've got a control of contrast 
in the shadows and highlights that's just unparalleled. I can drag more dynamic range out of the lightest and darkest parts of my image than I've ever been able to do before, and I can do it in using a really, really simple mechanism. Once you learn the interrelationship of these five sliders, I just feel like there's a, a massive level of image quality to be had that was much harder to attain. So for that reason alone, I don't understand why anyone would use anything else. So are there places people can go to learn how to do this sort of thing? Because, you know, I take decent images sometimes, and then I get into my editing software and I go, well, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do to improve this image. So are there sort of, you know, a standard set of, set of rules, or is it just basically up to the shooter how they particularly like their images to look at the end? In a way, you're asking two different questions there. There's there's the how do you use the actual tool, and then there's the understanding of, of the aesthetics of photography. What makes for a good-looking picture? Why does this image look better than that image? And I think that you, you, you have to know both of those things, and you tend to learn them simultaneously. A lot of it's just practice. Um, you do have to, your eye does change, your nervous system does change. The more you shoot, the more you look at images, and the more you look at them thoughtfully and vigorously, uh, the more you're going to be able to understand what the difference is between a good shot and a bad shot in terms of, of tonality and contrast and color. Um, really learning how to work the tools is the easy part. Mm -hmm. I Just as you're a musician, you know the importance of ear training, right. uh, just for recognizing intervals and, and chords and and your your listeners may not know this, but Chris Breen actually has perfect pitch. Um, there, I believe there is the equivalent in photography. You have to train your eye. You have to train your eye, particularly if you're printing, and everyone should be printing. Looking at images on screen is no way to look at a photo. Uh, you need to train your eye up to the point where you can tell a 1% difference in, in black. You should be able to recognize the difference between 100% black and 98% black. And that just comes through lots and lots of printing and lots and lots of looking at images. And once you do that, it, it becomes a lot easier to recognize, you know, what this image needs is a little bit more contrast in the shadows, or mm -hmm. the midtones are all uniform, or there's probably more detail to be had in the highlights. And I feel like these tools that we've got now in Lightroom and Camera Raw let me think that way, recognize those problems, and really target them and address them very, very easily. Apparently, I'm have to move to Lightroom. I'm, so I'm doing things other ways, just like oh here I'll here I'll hit this magic wand button and oh look what happened it's, it's really saturated. Well, now the other thing that that I, I don't know that people necessarily realize really the key to getting a great print is localized editing. There's no global adjustment most of the time that fixes an image perfectly. You have to go in and really make a lot of changes to separate to individual parts in the image, just like you did in a darkroom. To get a good print, you always had to dodge and burn very carefully. And the same is still true with digital. And that has to do with the fact that that, that camera technology just doesn't match the human eye. Uh, our eyes have this tremendous dynamic range and an incredible ability to pull detail out of shadows and detail out of highlights, and our cameras can't do that. So we have to go in and work that in by hand through a lot of localized edits. And that's another place where the Adobe products really shine. As we wrap up, and because say something about the holiday let's say i'm going to get something for somebody uh who's interested in photography they've been using their phone pretty much okay um, and uh and so let's talk about like three levels of users somebody who's marginally interested in getting a better picture than out of their phone somebody who's been using an old point and shoot for a while and wants to get more serious about it and then what do you get a pro these days 
Okay, so wait, who was our first person? The They've been using their phone. They've been using their phone, and they've been t- taking a lot of selfies and going, oh, this is cool. I want to be a photographer. Right. Um, you know, with, with, with the iPhone 6, or I'm sorry, with iOS 8, they gave us basically an exposure compensation control in the camera. So I can tell the camera to expose brighter or darker to compensate for backlighting or, or things like that. But we still have no control over how we're doing it. We can't say, well, I want this image brighter and I want it brighter due to a a shutter speed change or an aperture change or something like that. So while that's a great mechanism for improving overall exposure, we're still not getting into the full range of, you still don't have the full tool set, creative tool set that a real photographer has. So for the next step for a beginning photographer, stepping up from the phone would be a camera with some manual overrides, the ability to independently choose shutter speed and aperture. What's great about the phone is everyone can go out right away and start learning composition and start practicing and start trying to figure out what makes a good, a good, a well-composed image. And for 80% of the images that you shoot, that's very often all you need because automatic modes are very good. So adding that manual control is going to get you in t- into understanding just more of what you can do creatively, but also get you out of the problems that you may run into for those 20% of the images that the phone can't handle. So that could be either a high quality point and shoot, like I was mentioning before, uh, the Sony RX100 or, or any number of offerings from Olympus and, and Sony and Fuji and Panasonic, or you could go up to an inexpensive SLR. And that may mean a used SLR. I just helped someone pick out a little rebel from from ebay and there's a lot of good deals out there and that's a great mm-hmm. next step and and that may be the last camera they ever need yeah. uh, that may be that it may be that they go wow this is great i like having a little bit more control i like looking through a viewfinder and blocking out the world i like the the lens uh flexibility that i have and this is good i'm taking better pictures but i don't need to go any further i'm not that interested in this hobby um so that would be my recommendation. If you don't have a lot of money to spend, at the very least, pick up something like some clip lenses for the iPhone. These are little clip-on lenses that give you more telephoto power. There's another one that gives you wide angle. There's another that gives you macro. There's a fisheye. And that at least would let someone start to experiment with what it's like when they've got a different field of view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where your eye starts really changing, when you start learning to recognize wide angle subject matter or... Um, telephoto subject matter and the thing about a telephoto lens that's that's very often surprising for new shooters is it's not just about that thing's way far away and I can make it look big it's that the telephoto lens compresses depth in the scene so you can start building compositions out of the relationship between something that's near and something that's far um, because the thing that's far away will look bigger in the frame and so you right. can you can flatten out that 3D space and start playing in a different way with composition. So you can do that on an iPhone even just by adding some lenses to the camera and that's a nice affordable way to get a step up into some different functionality. I forget who your middle person was now. Uh, middle person, let's say they've been using uh, point and shoot for a while, they've kept it on auto the entire time, <laughs> they want to do something else uh, so do they look at a micro four thirds or are they looking at a cheap SLR? Well, if they've been, if, if they've already got an SLR and they've just been keeping it on auto, what you do is you get a Sharpie and you black out the auto <laughs> on the, on the knob so that they can't shoot there anymore. Um, and you try and encourage them to, to, to not be afraid and to, to step out and do something different. And one way to encourage that is say, 
go buy a new lens or rent yourself a lens for the weekend just to get yourself excited about your camera again and go out and try to force yourself to, to learn these more manual controls and start seeing what you can do with them. And there are simple things like uh, put in an aperture priority mode, lock the aperture on something really wide so that you've only got shallow depth of field or lock it on something small so that you've only got deep depth of field and just start playing with that and learning what the difference is. Um, if they don't have an SLR, then this is their first step into a camera system. So that's, as you're discovering, a, a big step and an important decision. Yeah. So yeah, they now they need to look at, they've got three things to look at, the mirrorless world, the crop sensor world, and the full frame world. And probably the first defining feature there is going to be cost. And the cheapest way to go of those three is going to be the cropped sensor world. And so that if, if cost is a factor, that's going to be the type of camera they're looking at. If money is no object, then they've got a number of different parameters to weigh from image quality to lens selection to camera size and weight to uh, the diff advantages and disadvantages of working with a, a larger or smaller sensor. And that's a bigger conversation than we can have in a paragraph. <laughs> right. Okay, and then in pros, uh, one, assuming that you're well-heeled enough to give somebody something really great, mm -hmm. or some of the pros seem not to carry with them, but they probably should. Oh, a white balance card. Whybal.com, W-H-I-B-A-L. This is, if they don't have one of these already, it's very inexpensive, 20, 25 bucks. It's a little gray card. And for getting accurate white balance, especially if you're shooting raw, it's a must-have. I have one, and I love it, but now that I've got all these different cameras and am sometimes carrying one selection of lenses or another, I, I grab a new camera bag for today and load it up with stuff and forget to move the white balance card. From, so even if they already have one, buy them another one because they probably got multiple bags. They can, they can put or they can <laughs> right. keep one in a coat pocket and one in their camera bag. It's just a must-have really great camera accessory. Um, other small, less expensive things that are nice to have that are always useful are neutral density filters, which allow you to block light from the lens. So if you're in bright daylight, you can stack a bunch of neutral density filters on your lens to cut a bunch of light so that you can work with longer shutter speeds. So if you're in bright daylight, but you're wanting to blur motion, mm -hmm. you might need neutral density filters. Or I wouldn't say a camera bag. I, I feel that's a very personal choice that someone right. has to make on their own. But, uh, but there are accessories like that. All right, and you were talking about your, your shoulder has gone out because of carrying yeah. heavy cameras. So is there a new kind of strap you can get that is going to put that weight on both shoulders? Well, that or? would be a, a backpack, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And then there, and again, that's, I, I think that's a hard decision to make for someone else because a backpack, it's not just about fit, it's about, you know, there are backpacks now, uh, Low Pro makes a nice series of backpacks that have a, a door in the side. So you can just take the strap off of one arm so that the pack slings forward around your side and, and you can easily get into it. Um, but they also, you know, and then there are cap, uh, backpacks with hydration systems built into them so that you've got a camelback and a backpack and all in one. There are backpacks that can also carry a computer or an iPad or something like that. It, if you really know what kind of bag someone likes, then yeah, that's a good way to go. Is, is buying them something like that. For the, if money is no object, the best thing you could do would be to buy them a plane ticket. Go shoot somewhere else. Yeah, no matter what skill level you're at, the thing that's gonna make you a better shooter is practice. And that's true even at the pro end, you just need to be shooting and shooting and shooting. And we all feel like we're stuck shooting at home all the time. So getting to go somewhere else and shoot is just a, always breaks us out of our, of our shooting ruts. That said, you should not feel like you can only shoot when you're away from home. If you can't shoot at home, you 
can't shoot anywhere else either. But still, it's nice to be given a plane ticket. Let's talk a little bit about training because you have produced a number of courses for lynda.com that are terrific. So not only offering the option to uh, pimp your own stuff, <laughs> but because um, you, I know you've done so many courses for them. Where would you start in your courses for somebody who's new to this kind of shooting that they've done the point and shoot but now they really want to get into some of the manual control understand things like aperture and, and speed they should start with a course called foundations of photography exposure which will work them through most of what they need to know about exposure i say most because there's some more advanced topics that aren't included in that course but uh, you need to practice with the basics for a while anyway so foundations of photography exposure from there go on to foundations of photography lenses which makes it sound like it's about how to buy a lens, but it's it's about a lot more than that. It's about um, the effect of camera position and focal length on on your frame and, and a number of other things. And then finally, from there into Foundations of Photography Composition, which, as you might guess, is all about composition. So those three things will get you all of the basics. And I've got a number of other courses that are more specialized. So if you want to learn about the basics of flash photography or black and white or... Uh, HDR, any number of other things, those are all there at lynda.com. And that's L-Y-N-D-A. I have learned a ton. Um, I think it's probably going to cost me more money. Excellent. But, uh, <laughs> but still, it's been good. Yeah. So uh, it's been great to talk to you. Great to talk to you, Chris, uh, and congratulations on the new camera. Thank you. I'll, I'll let you know how it turns Heavy out. as it may be. Well, this is lighter than my old one. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. cool. Yeah, no, they have less metal in it. So, I, you know, that makes you a little concerned about dropping the thing. But I understand you're probably not supposed to drop these things. Anyway. Yeah, no matter what it's made out of, yeah. Yeah, so I think I'll just try to be more careful with it. That wraps up another episode of the Macworld Podcast, brought to you by Boom 2 from Global Delight. Louder, clearer, and better audio from your Mac. If you have any comments or questions, drop us a line at podcast at macworld.com. Thanks very much for listening.